This Parsha podcast is dedicated in loving memory and Le'ilu Nishmas, Ronit Bat Elimelech, whose yard site is today. May her Neshama have an Aliyah, may her soul be elevated to the highest heights through these words of Torah. And this week has been a seminal week in the Walby family. As you know, every year we travel to the Northeast to escape the Houston summer and to spend some time with our family there. And this week we travel back. We got back early Wednesday morning. It was a grueling three-day trip. It's great to be home. Of course, our real home is in Jerusalem, is in Israel. Every Jew's real home is in Israel. But our temporary home in Houston, Texas, it's great to be back. And the trip was wonderful. We were quite strategic about our itinerary, our travel path. As you know, it's really hard to keep kosher while traveling through this country because there is a paucity of kosher options, but we managed to find kosher venues to stop at on all three days of our trip. And last year, we made it like a little bit of a yearly tradition to stop off and uh, go see a baseball game. It's nine innings. The game takes so long. It's so slow. It's a game that can never be invented today. But we have, of course, nostalgia to baseball. And my boys love going and they bring their gloves. And last year we stopped off in Cincinnati. We watched the game in Cincinnati. And this year we stopped off in Atlanta. And we caught the Mets. Growing up, I was a big Mets fan. So I got to watch the Mets get absolutely eviscerated by the Braves, notwithstanding a rain delay. But the one bright spot was that my oldest son, Akiva, actually caught a baseball. So that was really nice. But uh, the trip was wonderful. I got the opportunity to listen to some great podcasts along the way, even two audiobooks along the way. But now we're here, and I'm done driving. The furthest I could go was to the Torch Center, five minutes away. We're here. We're home. We're in the Torch Center. It's nice and quiet and peaceful. This is the ideal venue to record a Parsha podcast. And this is no ordinary Parsha podcast. This is the special episode that marks two years of uninterrupted episodes, week in and week out, with the help of the Almighty, with the support of all of our friends and donors and partners, and of course, with your listenership. We gather together each week to study the Parsha and to see what we can learn. And this week, Parshas Ekev, it turns out that the answer is we can learn quite a lot. And our discussion today is going to focus on the very first Rashi comment on our Parsha. Of course, our Parsha starts off with a promise. It will be if you listen to the laws, to these laws, and you guard them and you observe them. We have an amazing litany of blessings that the Almighty promises in the event that we listen, we hearken, we obey, we adhere to the mitzvos, to the laws, and we observe them and we guard them. The Almighty promises that he will guard the covenant and the 
kindness that he promised our forefathers. He'll love us. He'll bless us. He'll make us grow and proliferate. Our children, our flocks, our produce, our yields, our crop yields, our wine and grain and oil, flock and livestock, everything will flourish and will be blessed from all the other nations. And there will be no infertility amongst our people. And all the illnesses and all the maladies of Egypt will not be placed upon us, but instead will be placed upon our enemies. Not only that, we will eat, we will consume, we will devour all of these nations that are facing us. All of our enemies will be consumed. So that's how Parsha starts off with this incredible blessing. If you just listen, if you just adhere, if you just hearken to the mitzvos, these mitzvos that I command you, all these amazing blessings will be bestowed upon us. Where do I sign? How do I get involved? This sounds incredible. And again, the Parsha starts off, it will be on the heels of you hearkening to these mitzvos, you will receive these incredible blessings. Now, the Parsha, the verse, is moot onto the identity of these mitzvos. The verse just says, these mitzvos, if you do them, if you observe them, if you hearken to them, if you maintain them and guard them, You'll have all these blessings, but it does not identify the identity of which mitzvos are being referenced. These mitzvos, which ones? That's how our parsha starts off. And you open up Rashi, the Rashi comment, the very first comment in our parsha. You see something incredibly stunning. Which mitzvos? Which mitzvos garner this? Wonderful blessing. Beget this incredible blessing, says Rashi. will be on the heels of you listening to these mitzvos, says Rashi, that the word etiv, which means heels, and it can be used in the context of on the heels of, which means following you observing these mitzvos. If you observe the mitzvos, then you will receive them. This choice of terminology, Rashi tells us, is not a coincidence. Because the very mitzvahs that are being referenced, the mitzvahs in whose merit we receive all these blessings, are the easy mitzvahs, the mitzvahs that we tend to trample upon with our heels. The word ekev, the name of our parsha, it means a heel, like the bottom back part of your foot. You remember Jacob, when he was born, he was clutching, he was grabbing onto the heels of Asaph, Vyado Ochezis Ba'akave Asaph. Jacob was holding on to the heel of Asaph. In fact, that's why he was called Yaakov, which is from the same word, from the same Hebraic root as Akev, which means a heel. Jacob, my name, Yaakov. Yaakov! Where does that come from? It comes from the word or the same Hebraic root as heel, that back part of the foot. And Rashi tells us that there are certain mitzvos that are heel mitzvos, mitzvos that we tend to devalue. We want to trample over them with our heels. We disregard them. We overlook them. 
If you obey the heel mitzvos, if we obey those mitzvos that others tend to disregard and stomp upon with their heels, if you do that, then you become the recipient of all these amazing blessings, of all this prosperity, of all this hegemony, crushing, consuming, devouring our enemies, flourishing in every possible way. How do you do that? By observing those heel mitzvos that people tend to trample upon. And this is a very scary Rashi. Moshe is talking to the Jewish people. The Jewish people have bought in to the program. And Moshe is telling them that there are certain mitzvos, certain commandments of God that people tend to trample upon. Mitzvos that we so thoroughly discount and disregard that we forget that they're actually mitzvos. Meaning, if people realized that they are instructions from the Almighty, this is the will of Hashem, no one would trample upon it. This is not talking about people that disregard mitzvos entirely. These are people that do value mitzvos, but there are certain kinds of mitzvos, a certain category, a certain class of mitzvos that we tend to disregard. And it's kind of terrifying. If you have a king that issues an order, what is the fate of a subject who tramples all over it? That's mutiny. That is totally indefensible. So Rashi is revealing to us that there's a certain class, a certain group of mitzvos, that even though in general, in aggregate, we are committed to adhering to the rules of God, there are mitzvos that are so light, are so forgettable, are so inconsequential and not substantial in our eyes that we trample over them and we're totally unaware of what is underfoot, we're unaware that we're trampling over the will of God. So the concept, in general, that Rashi is revealing to us that there are certain mitzvahs that are heel mitzvahs that people trample upon, that is a terrifying revelation. Now there's another instance in our literature where the concept of deeds, of actions or inactions that people tend to trample upon with their heels, there's another instance where that is featured. The Talmud talks about sins, not mitzvahs, but the opposite. Sins that seem inconsequential. Sins that people tend to trample over with their heels. Those sins, they seem innocuous. They seem negligible. It's inconsequential. It's trivial. Yet, they are very impactful. In the words of the Talmud, the sins that people trample over them in this world will encircle said person in the Day of Judgment. This is an incredible idea. There are behaviors that are mitzvos and sins. Part of the instruction corpus of the Almighty that people tend to disregard and not view as being so important. And they are very consequential. 
We think that they're not so important, but here we're told that all these amazing blessings are contingent upon those mitzvahs that you disregard. And all the punishments that the Talmud reveals, they're contingent on the sins that we tend to disregard. That is what will encircle us in the Day of Judgment. Now, the Midrash reveals to us that this is not just simpletons, lay people, average people like us. It's not just the simpletons that are liable to undervalue certain classes of behaviors, certain mitzvahs and sins. The Midrash talks about one of the all-time greats, King David. King David said, quote, this is based upon a verse in Scripture, he tells God, so to speak, I am not worried about the stringent mitzvos, the important mitzvos, the substantial mitzvos. They're very severe. And I know that in all those areas, I dotted my eyes, I crossed my T's, I made sure that I fulfilled your will. But I'm worried about those easy things, those inconsequential things. You said, you God tell us, you God warn us to be fastidious about every deed, the easy one, the lenient one, and the severe and harsh one alike. And that's what I'm worried about, because maybe I, like other people, also trample over certain classes of behaviors. I don't take it seriously, and that's what I'm worried about in the Day of Judgment. So our sages revealed to us that there are certain mitzvos that are heal mitzvos, certain sins that are heal sins. People disregard, don't view as important. And they are, in fact, the ones that are going to beget these incredible blessings as featured in our parsha. And they are what we have to worry about in the Day of Judgment. And of course, this raises some obvious questions. First of all, what are the identity of these heel mitzvos? What are these classes of mitzvos and sins that people tend to trample all over? Question number one. Question number two, why are the heel mitzvos the ones that earn us all these incredible blessings? You know, the opposite would seem to be more logical. If it's a really important mitzvah, it's a really substantial mitzvah, well, then it should have a commensurate reward. It seems quite illogical to say that something which is less important, it's so non-important that some people even tend to disregard it and not even realize that they're mitzvos. Why would that have such a big impact? Why would these blessings be contingent upon those heel mitzvos? You would think it's the important mitzvos that move the needle. Why are specifically the easy, overlooked mitzvahs, the ones that beget these incredible blessings. Evidently, there's a hierarchy to deeds. Some are really important. Some are really crucial. Some are less important. Some mitzvahs are really important. Others, it seems like people trample over with their heels. Some sins are really important. Others get trampled over with their heels. We discover that while we may think that these heel deeds are unimportant, 
The truth is that they are very consequential. Those heal mitzvos, they give us the blessing. And those heal sins encircle us in the time of judgment. Now, when you plumb this question a little bit deeper, you find something really interesting. There doesn't seem to be a consensus definition as to what is characterized, what is classified as a mitzvah that people trample upon. The identity of these heel mitzvos is not agreed upon at all. What exactly constitutes these mitzvos? We find all kinds of ideas. And I was thinking that maybe this is deliberately left undefined. There are a variety of factors that can cause someone to devalue a mitzvah. And therefore, whatever someone tends to disregard, whatever that may be, and for whatever reason they may disregard it, that would classify it as a heel mitzvah. And because there are so many different factors that may allow us to accord hierarchy value, to assign a higher value to certain mitzvahs and to disregard others, therefore, anything that we tend to overlook is included in this list. So I found a bunch of different ideas, and I want to share them with you here today, on this special edition of the Parsha Podcast, back in the Torch Center, the original one, in Houston, Texas, here's what I found. Mitzvos, of course, span a wide gamut of behaviors. Some of them are very lofty. They seem to be very heavenly, very spiritual. And some seem to be very base, very mundane. And we tend to think that the lofty, spiritual ones, something supernal, something from a different world, that's what's really important. That's what engenders real change. That's how we forge a relationship with the Almighty. Something with prophecy, something with angels, something with Kabbalistic esoterica. But a simple mitzvah, a mundane mitzvah, an earthly mitzvah, that doesn't really make an impact. And the truth is that we got this one wrong. You may recall all the way back in Genesis, there was a staggering episode where Abraham, a couple days after circumcision, he was trying to heal, he was outdoors, and God appears to him, and God starts to communicate with Abraham. That's prophecy. And then from the corner of Abraham's eye, in his peripheral vision, he notices three wandering pagan travelers, three Bedouins, and he tells God, excuse me, I have to go. I know, in the middle of a prophecy, I'm at this climax of human achievement. I'm communicating with the divine. But there are three hungry Bedouins who worship the dust on their feet, pagan travelers. I'm sorry, God. Please wait. I have to go extend some hospitality to these travelers. What Abraham is teaching us is that the real mitzvos, 
that transform us are those things that we disregard. Not the lofty experiences of interfacing with the divine. Prophecy is great. But you know what's even more impactful? Feeding three wary travelers. The Talmud, in fact, rules. Gdola hachnasas archim. Inviting guests, tending to guests, extending hospitality is actually greater than prophecy. One of them is something that is a life-changing experience. Can you imagine? A human, a frail, flawed, fallible, small human communicating with God, creator of heaven and earth. What can be greater than that? No one tramples upon that. No one disregards that. Three wary travelers, maybe they can wait. I'll be done here soon. I'm having an audience with the Almighty. I'll be with you soon. Abraham shows us that, no, we got it wrong. That deed that people may disregard and trample upon, feeding the wary, is actually more transformative than communing with the Almighty. The soul comes from very lofty origins. It comes from the worlds on high. It comes from a place of unadulterated spirituality. And yet, it comes here to this crazy world where it has to be married to a body and live with this insane world, certainly from the perspective of the soul. And the reason is because the soul can achieve heights over here that it cannot achieve up there. Prophecy is great. But the soul gets more transformed by feeding the three Bedouins. And Abram tells God, please wait, please wait. I know we're in the middle of this prophecy. Please wait so I can do something which is even more impactful. I could feed the strangers. This is one idea about what Rashi and our sages are conveying to us. If you had to weigh these two behaviors, prophecy with God, feeding three wary pagan travelers, no one would disregard and devalue prophecy. And most of us would say, well, that's not so important. We can trample over that a little bit with our heels. Abraham shows us one of them is very much a terra firma mitzvah. And terra firma mitzvahs, that's why our soul was sent here. Our soul could have had prophecy in heaven for all eternity. It didn't need to come here for that. It needed to come here to live in this world and to transform and fix the physical environment and to do physical mitzvahs, even mitzvahs that people tend to disregard. Thus, Abraham shows us, this is one idea, idea number one, of many. Again, this is a very special episode. Not only am I back in the Torch Center, but it's also the completion of, with the help of the Almighty and with your listenership, two years of uninterrupted, not missing, thank God, even a single week of the Parsha podcast. We can't just get this over with and done with. We, we have to spend some time together. So you'll forgive me. I know it's Thursday. I apologize. In my head, it's still Monday because I have three days of driving. So today's Thursday. 
but it's the second day of the week, effectively, for the purposes of a Parsha podcast. Forgive me. Idea number one that we discover is that there are different spiritual levels of mitzvos. And while we may think that the lofty spiritual mitzvos are the ones that are really moving the needle, Abraham shows us that no, it's the ones that we trample upon, that we disregard, that we overlook. That is what our soul was sent here to do. Don't disregard them. They're the ones that really transform us. Idea number one. Idea number two is what I call the slippery slope idea. The Yitzhahara is a very talented, skillful, adroit foe. And we can define our life's mission with this one sentence, to overcome, repel, reject the Yitzhahara and its advances and thereby elevate ourselves. But the Yitzhahara is very insidious. It doesn't tempt us to do what it really wants us to do at the very beginning. It doesn't tempt us to do egregious sins right away. Its methodology is to chip away, to chip away at the little things, to get the ball rolling, to progressively move us closer to the untouchables. Talmud tells us the book of Shabbos, page 105b, If you see someone who's breaking vessels in their anger, treat them like an idolater. Because this is the methodology of the Yitzhah Today he tells you to do this, and tomorrow he tells you to do that, until eventually he tells you to worship idolatry. And you go, and you listen. The Yitzhah is looking for a foothold. Nay, a toehold. Nay, a heel hold within us. He's trying to find something to grip upon us. Something where he could clasp his tentacles upon us. And once he has a foothold, a heel hold, he's going to advance. Once there's a little beachhead within us, the die is almost cast. And he's always going to start off with the things that we tend to disregard. The mitzvos, they're not so important, you can overlook them. The sins that seem to be innocuous, it's not so bad. The things that we trample upon with our heels, that is where the beginning of the battle commences. But once you start, once you hearken, he slowly ups the ante bit by bit. Boiling the frog until it's too late. The battlefront between us, our soul, and our insidious foe is precisely at the point of our heel, at the point of things that we th- we deem inconsequential. The Yetzirah wants us to repudiate Torah, to embrace idolatry, to depose God from within us and to install the foreign God, the Yetzirah, in God's stead. But he doesn't come and say, well, let's repudiate all of Torah, reject God, full insurrection, mutiny against God. 
That's not what he says. He says, well, let's deal with the small things. The things that are so important. Does it really, really matter? Is this so important? Is this so critical? We're not dealing with the idolatry and the murder and the adultery and all the terrible things, the sins of the Torah. We'll deal with the small things. It's not really so important. Come on. Don't be a fanatic. It's okay to yield a little bit over here and a little bit over there. It's not so important after all. There's a reason why people trample upon it with their heels. But that's not where it ends. That's where it begins. And our parsha is warning us about that. Realize that's where the battle is. Yes, it's less important than the more important things. But that is where our focus is because the Yitzhak begins over there. That is where the battlefront is. And if you uphold those things, if you remain stalwart, if you are unflinching and unyielding on the little things, on those heel things, and you don't budge an inch, and you don't allow a foothold or a toehold or a heel hold, the Yitzhak has no place within you. There's no beachhead in your heart, in your soul for the Yitzhahara. And for that, you are indeed deserving of the incredible blessings enumerated in our Parsha. There's a fantastic lesson over here when we're told about the mitzvahs that we disregard. It's very informative and illuminating because that is really where it all begins. And once it begins there, there's a very dangerous and slippery slope leading to the Yetzirah, the false god, installing itself within us and dominating us completely. That's another idea with this concept of mitzvos that we tend to disregard and trample upon. There is a famous Rambam that perhaps you have heard who talked about someone who wants to give a hundred units of charity. And he tells us that instead of giving it all to one worthy cause, and of course very important if you're going to give charity, and we are required to give charity, to give it to a good cause, don't give it to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, 95% of all the art that's donated there is actually never seen by the public. They rotate about 5% of the words that they have to showcase. But of course, I know it's really a tax evasion scheme. I understand that. But still, if you're going to give charity, give it to a worthy cause. But the Ram tells us, whatever you're going to give, divide up into a bunch of smaller gifts. Because every time you do an act of giving, even though the impact of obviously is smaller, if you give $1, the impact is $1, not $100. But if you give $1 a hundred times, you've trained yourself. You've trained your body to do a mitzvah a hundred times. And the lasting impact of that is actually greater than doing one big donation only once. Big checks are great, but people tend to trample upon the small gifts 
to charity. It's the act of giving that is transformative. And therefore, if a mitzvah is small in size and stature, don't disregard it. Because that act is transformative and doing that act 10 times or 100 times is ultimately what's going to change you. A third idea about this concept, this general idea, this general principle of mitzvahs that we tend to trample upon with our heels. Then you have another idea, and that is when mitzvahs are expensive versus when they are inexpensive. The Talmud tells us that, of course, we know our tzitzis are comprised of two types of strings. There's the white strings made out of wool. And then there's the blue strings also made out of wool, but wool that's been dyed with this very expensive dye, the trellis dye. So suppose you have someone that can't afford the trellis and they don't want to wear the trellis. They're going to be punished, says the Talmud. But the punishment given to them is less than the punishment given to someone who disregards the white, cheaper, more inexpensive strings. And the reason why is because one is a loftier mitzvah, one's a more expensive mitzvah, and one's cheaper. If it was so cheap to do and you didn't do it, it's a bigger smack in the face, so to speak, to the Almighty who told you to do it. You have an excuse, at least. You have an alibi. You have some sort of way to justify, even though it's not justified. But at least there is the argument to say, well, it was too expensive, I couldn't do it. But when something's easy, it was so easy for you to do it, and you trampled upon it with your heel, you forgot that this is a commandment of the Almighty. And therefore, the punishment for disregarding the easy mitzvah is actually harsher than the punishment for disregarding the more expensive one. And the Talmud reads an example. A king asks two of his subjects, one of them, he says, bring me an, an ingot of gold. I think that's actually pronounced ingot. An ingot of gold. And the other one says, bring me a brick. And both servants do not fulfill their task. Which one of them is going to be punished more severely? The one that could have so easily gotten the brick, there's really no excuse. The golden ingot, ingot, I don't know how to pronounce it. Ingot, ingot, ingot. I, 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 scratch this. I don't know, the golden brick, the brick of gold. That, at least you have an excuse. Another idea. Some mitzvahs are more expensive. Some are harder to do. Less accessible to the average Joe. And although the Talmud tells us there's a punishment for disregarding any commandments of God, nevertheless, when it was more accessible, you have less of an excuse. And therefore, for those things that you disregard, they're not so important. They don't really capture your imagination. You tend to trample upon them. For that, that is a bigger repudiation, a bigger mutiny against God. And that's why the punishment and conversely the blessing is heightened for those things. I was thinking more generally, maybe the reason why 
the identity of these heel mitzvos is obscured is because every generation, it really changes. In every generation, there are things that we value and things that we discount, that we tend to overlook and devalue. But the Torah is trying to train us, regardless of what the people of your time and place in history may value and devalue, if the Almighty tells you to do something, don't overlook it. But what I really want to tell you today, what I really wanted to convey to you in this very special edition of the Parsha Podcast, is an amazing approach that my grandfather wrote in one of his books. And I don't think this is an overstatement to say this principle is perhaps the most important one that we need to know if our goal, if our objective is to attain a degree of spiritual perfection, of ethical refinement, this principle is perhaps the most important one that we need to keep in mind. My grandfather said that many people, of course, want to improve. There's a natural inclination to try to better yourself, to improve yourself. But people don't know how to do it. And in fact, they do things that not only don't have a positive impact, it ends up being harmful. It ends up being deleterious. And the reason why they're making a blunder and they're not improving and in fact may even make things worse, may even exacerbate their flaws, is because they don't know how to do it. And he talks about this ancient legend. There was one place in the sea that the only way to get through, the only way to navigate passage was you had to go right between two cliffs. And between those cliffs, there were swirling winds and it would knock you either to this cliff or to that cliff and only a very skillful captain was able to navigate precisely between those two perils to arrive safely on the other side. This analogy, my grandfather, blessed memory, used to say, is fitting for our pursuit of greatness, of perfection, of refinement, of elevation. We have to skillfully navigate between two really severe dangers. On one hand, there's what he calls rebellion, backlash, boomerang. You want to do something good and you try, but you push too hard and there's a rebellion. There's a boomerang effect. You end up either in that area or in some other area. You actually stumble in a way that overshadows what you improved. That is cliff number one. Cliff number two is haughtiness, is the feeling of superiority. You're in a world with billions of average people. How do I know that? That's the definition of average. The average person is just average. We have another term here on the partial podcast for average people. Mediocre. Why? 
Why are we giving that term to average people? Because the natural trends of humanity, this is what our sages tell us, is that we devolve. We have a Sahara that's steaming constantly. And if we're taking a day off, he's up. He's awake and he's still cunningly steaming and striving to get us to blunder. And therefore, the default state is one of regression. The average state is mediocrity. And what happens when someone says, I'm going to buck the trend? I'm not going to be average. I'm not going to be mediocre. I'm going to become special. I'm going to become great. I'm going to elevate myself. I'm going to refine myself. I'm going to improve myself. I'm going to overcome my tendencies. I'm going to triumph over that master foe. That person is elevating themselves above their peers, above all the other average humans that are around them. In a sea, in an ocean of mediocrity, one person is levitating, is ascending, is towering over others. And that's great unless it brings with it, together with it, feelings of superiority, of arrogance, of haughtiness, because that is totally unconscionable to a believer. By our definition, haughtiness, arrogance, misallocated pride, that is a repudiation of faith. If you believe in faith, if you believe in God, then it's only God who's a creator. All of us are creations. And therefore, if I suddenly lord over others, because I'm better, I'm not mediocre, they're all mediocre, they're all average, but I'm superior. That's true. <laughs> That's true. If someone improves himself, it is true. But it's also deadly. And the Talmud says very harsh things about someone who is arrogant. God, so to speak, says that person and me cannot coexist. There's only one creator. If you think that you are the creator, then you have no room in God's world. And that's the second cliff you have to navigate. On one hand, you want to make sure that you're improving and you're not regressing in your efforts to improve. That's the fear of rebellion, where you're going to fight against a powerful incumbent. The entrenched interest of the status quo. You're fighting the Eitzahara. You succeed in one area, he's going to redouble his efforts in the second area. That's one of the concerns you have to face off. And the other one is haughtiness. And the only way to succeed is if you avoid both threats. You avoid the backlash. You avoid the rebellion. You avoid pushing the spring too hard that it ricochets in the other direction. It bounces back in the direction in a way that is actually more harmful. You do more bad than good. On the other hand, you have the concern of haughtiness, of arrogance of ending up in a place where you have ascended 
but you've forgotten about God. And like the Federal Reserve, to succeed in this mission, you got to do a really clever balancing act to not push too hard in either direction, to navigate very nimbly, adroitly, and skillfully these two cliffs, and to achieve a soft landing. If your improvement is coupled with haughtiness, it's aggression. If your improvement is going to bring about rebellion, you'll end off way worse. You need to find a way to navigate these twin cliffs. You need to find a way to navigate passage safely. How do we advance our agenda without falling off a cliff? Not this one and not that one. There's one answer. We gotta look down at our heels and find all those things that we trample upon. All those things that are so insignificant, they're so not substantial, they're so not important. And that's what we need to embrace. That is our key to ascend above our peers, but not to feel superior to them. That's our key to fight against the HRO without backlash, without the boomerang effect. It's all the small things, all the tiny things, all the infinitesimally microscopic things. That is actually how we do it. That's the key. That's the great secret. The big things, the substantial things, the things that grab the headlines, the things that move mountains. That's how you tumble off the cliff. How do you do this skillfully, adroitly, gently, with precision, to navigate to the other side to safety, to ascend in the proper, measured, and balanced way, to have that soft landing that everyone covets, specifically with the small things? And that's what our Parsha is warning us about. How do we achieve that blessing? How do we achieve that greatness? How do we ascend? How do we connect to our Creator? How do we upgrade our spiritual standing? We do that with small, tiny deeds. Just like man. Man is composed of infinitesimally tiny components. Every cell is so small. You need a real microscope to see it. But the cell, of course, is comprised of billions of little pieces of its own. How many little distinct pieces make up a person? Trillions upon trillions. In our spiritual makeup, what's going to build our spiritual character? Those things are all small too. This is a revolutionary insight. We think, you know, you want to change the world. How do you change the world? Let's make a big commission and let's advance some big ideas. The real change happens in very small doses. Like a medicine. 
How does the medicine work? Drive it really small. You take too much of the medicine. It can have a negative effect. Mitzvos, but specifically pursuit of greatness. It's the tiny things that are the medicine for our malady. Too much of it. Too much of trying to improve. Trying to undertake too much. Biting off more than you could chew. That's like tripling or quintupling the dosage of a medicine. And instead of being rehabilitative, it could be deadly. You want to have a bold initiative? You want to change everything overnight? Be careful, because you are careening very close to that cliff. You are going to evoke rebellion. You're going to end up as someone who rejects God. The way to do it is to fly under the radar. Do something really small. Look under your heel. What's underfoot? What's so small? It's so insignificant. No one's going to give you plaudits or honor. It's so small. It's not even going to arouse the interest of the foe within you, the Yitzhara. If you fly under the radar, that's how you grow. That's how you flourish. That's how you assemble within you all that spiritual greatness. My grandfather, blessed memory, wrote that during the Yom Kippur War, he flew to Egypt when the Israeli army was on the other side of the Suez. He flew to Egypt to speak, to encourage, to inspire the paratroopers that were over there. And he writes that he was just shocked on the course of the flight. It was a military transport plane. And they were flying a few meters above the ground. Typically, a plane flies, what, 35,000 feet in the air. This plane was flying 100 feet in the air. Very low to the ground. So my grandfather asked one of the people on the plane, why are we flying so low? So he said, right now we're in Egyptian airspace and we're trying to evade the radar. You fly so low to the ground, it's not picked up by the radar. Says my grandfather, blessed memory, this is a precise analogy of how we grow and transform and become great. We got to fly under the radar. How do we navigate passage between the cliffs? Flying under the radar. Doing things that are so small. The eight Saras radar doesn't pick it up. Doing things that are so small that the feelings of superiority, of lording of other people, just don't get triggered. It's easy. It's easy to become great because you got to find the little things. The things that are so easy because they're so small and so easy, everyone tramples upon it. But that's how you get across to the other side. That's how you navigate passage. And there's another idea just to bring this home. There are a few famous Talmudic aphorisms. Tafasta Maruba. If you grab a lot, low Tafasta, you've not grabbed anything. If you grab a little bit, then you have something. If you try to bite off too much, you'll suffocate. If you nibble a little bit, nibble here, nibble there, eventually 
you will ascend in the proper way. There's another amazing line. This one's a classic, a classic line. Talmud talks about Bilam. Bilam, of course, was killed. We executed him. He was killed by the sword we talked about a few weeks ago. Bilam was killed by Pinchas. Where was Bilam? He was going to collect his payment because he gave advice to the Midianites to triumph over the Jews. He says, where's my payment? And as he's there trying to get his payment, his head was chopped off. Says the Talmud, there's a great aphorism that goes with this. The camel went to find horns. The camel wasn't happy, didn't have any horns. He said, let me get, let me get some horns. And instead, its ears were cut off. Sometimes when you want to get more than you have, you end up emerging with less than what you had when you started. I think there's also a line that they say, in our common parlance, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. Of course, we're not going to say that because this is the partial podcast and we don't like talking about pigs or hogs, but the principle is true. And the lesson for us is there are little things, things that are so insignificant and so inconsequential. But just as we are all made up of trillions of little things, our spiritual makeup is built with all these small little things. And of course, we think about mitzvos. But think about the big ones. Well, like Abraham. Abraham tells God, wait, I'm sorry. Could you please just stay here for a few minutes? I got to deal with something more important. And what's that? To give someone who needs a meal, to give him food, to smile at someone, to inquire about someone, to be fastidious, to not wake up someone sleeping to be considerate of other people. No one writes newspaper headlines about someone who does that. But someone who does do that is taking a step to navigate the pursuit of greatness in a safe and effective way. Do not trample with your heels over all those little things if it is greatness that you seek. Okay, let's get this week's exquisite insight. Are you ready for a special second year anniversary for the uninterrupted street edition of the exquisite insight from our Parsha? There's a very odd verse. This is Devarim chapter 10, verse 12. Ve'ata Yisrael, and now, O Israel, what does Hashem, your God, ask of you? Moshe is speaking to his nation, to his flock, and he finally reveals what the Almighty actually wants. Listen, O Israel, what does God actually want of you? If I read just that, I didn't tell you what the answer was, there would be a very obvious question. The preamble of the verse says that, Moshe says, okay, now, now I will tell you what Hashem wants. What does Hashem your God want of you? Let me tell you. The whole premise seems flawed. We believe that every single letter of the Torah is the will of God. So what has God asked of us? Every single letter of the Torah is part of that corpus. 
You cannot have a bottom line. Say, this is really what's important. Everything else is less important. If you say this to the exclusion of anything else, to me, it seems like it's obviously philosophically, theologically problematic. We just said, we just talked about it for almost an hour. We talked about how there are the little things that people trample upon. Is Moshe trampling upon the little things? Can't be. Moreover, if you look at the words that Moshe uses, he says, what has God asked of you? Ma Hashem Elokecha Shoel Mi'ima. What has God asked of you? Typically, we think of God as issuing commandments, instructions. He doesn't ask. He demands. He instructs. So the beginning of the verse is, is quite problematic. The answer of what God actually wants is equally problematic. Because Moshe revisits something that he's already said in the past. God wants us just to fear him and to go in his ways and to love him and to worship him with all our heart and all our soul. Moshe mentions four things that have already been featured in the Torah. Love of God, fear of God, going in God's ways and worshiping God, serving God. Those, all four of them, are mitzvahs of the 613. So what is Moshe revealing to us in this statement? What does God want of you? These four things. Moreover, Moshe seems to start off by saying, let me simplify things for you. What does God actually want? What's the bottom line? Simplify it in one sentence. Give me the mission statement. Give me the elevator pitch. And then he lists love of God, fear of God, some of the biggest things, and he does four of them, four distinct things, not just one. So it's a very problematic verse. And there's an idea that I want to share with you, a very powerful one. And this is based upon the comment of the Ha'amek Davar, the Nitziv. It's not quite what he says, but it's similar to what he says. We've talked about this in the past many times. Our connection with Torah exists on two planes. We have the Torah that's given to every single Jew, 613 mitzvot, the instructions that are very clear, outlined in the literature. In the Talmud, in the Mishnah, in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Rambam, in Scripture. It's organized for us. Every Jew should know what to do, please God, you know, we hopefully, if we're well-educated, we'll know what to do in every given situation. And once you're bar or bat mitzvah, you are obligated in every single jot and tittle of the Torah. Moshe is telling the Jewish people, that's great. But the Almighty created each one of us differently. We're all different. We're all unique. We're all individuals. What does God ask of you? Every individual, beyond the generic responsibilities of us as part of the Almighty's nation, the Almighty wants us to pick a mission. What area, what corner of God's agenda are you going to pick? 
Find the specific area of your spiritual life in which you can make a real focus. Beyond the 613, everyone must choose a spiritual mission. In the 613, there's no choice. There's no, it's demands. There's no God asking of us. There are no carve-outs or coupons or discount codes. We're all obligated in that. But that's not enough. God wants something of you specifically. Find your mission. Find your uniqueness. Find the root of your soul. Find what really connects with you. Build your spiritual legacy. And what does that look like? There are four different categories or modes of a spiritual mission. There's fear of God. And for some people, that's their destiny. To be very serious. To be very focused on the gravity of being a human created by God. For others, their uniqueness is manifested with almost a completely opposite mode of relationship, and that is love of God. Just like we know we're servants of God, we're also children of God. We have a relationship with God. He's our king, but he's also our father. And there's a, a way to develop your individual unique path in life where that's your focus. And there's the emulation of God, walking in God's ways. And that's manifested by trying to emulate God completely. And then there's a fourth mode, and that is service of God. All of us are the same in one area of our spiritual lives, and that's the stitch 13. All of us are the same. God is asking of us to do something beyond the 613. What has he asked of us? There's a choice. Choose. Find which one of these four general categories do you really connect with and develop something on your own. Our giants are not clones of each other. If what the Torah wanted of us was the same for every individual, then all the greats of our history would be indistinguishable from each other. But that's not what the Almighty wants. Of course, there's a part of the mission that is uniform across the board, but we're all created differently because the Almighty wants us to develop ourselves in our own individual, unique, personalized way. Abraham was one of the great giants of our history. And he had a son who was also one of the great giants of our history, Isaac and Jacob. And they were all completely different. They were the same in one dimension. On the 613 level, they were the same. But they all discovered their own unique identity and developed and burnished a certain part of their relationship with the Almighty. If Abraham was love of God, Isaac was fear of God. Not to say that Isaac didn't love God and Abraham didn't fear God. Of course, 
on the SIDS-13 level, they all observed all SIDS-13. And we've talked about it in the past. Parshas told us of this year, the whole idea, the whole notion of the observing of Torah before it was given. We talked about that quite extensively, you may recall. But beyond that, it's not enough to say, I've done what you've asked me to do to the letter of the law. If you have not discovered your own path, your own unique contribution, your own unique spiritual edifice, you haven't fulfilled this verse. You haven't done what God asked of you. May we all be so fortunate to not only do what the Almighty demands of us, to also discover what the Almighty asks of us. And please, God, as we embark on year three with the help of the Almighty of our street, may we all study and flourish and grow together. May we absorb and digest and really inculcate and assimilate the ideas of Torah within us and become great along the way. I thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it one one hundredth of how much I enjoyed it. It's great to be back in the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. I hope you are well wherever you may be. Have an amazing week. Have a stupendous, fantastic, and splendid Shabbos upcoming. I'm pleased God with help the Almighty. We will talk again next week in good health and in great spirits. And as always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you soon. All the best.